Conversationalist is a podcast about the history of science from the 19th century to today, brought to you by the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. All right, let's get this party started. In the 19th century, scientific institutions, voluntary organizations, and even private individuals hosted what were known as conversazione, evening gatherings to showcase science and the arts. These events varied from the homespun and intimate to the lavish and spectacular. At these sometimes cacophonous, occasionally brandy-soaked events, world-renowned scientific professionals mingled with amateur explorers and enthusiasts, as well as the general public. There were lectures, displays, performances, and, of course, conversation. In this podcast, we invite you to join our own version of these classic Victorian affairs, our very own cocktail party with experts on the history of science. Conversazione were about information, but they were also very much about entertainment, so we ask our guests in each episode to regale us with a story about the history of science that will captivate us for a drink or two. And, at the end of each episode, we'll check in with a couple of other very important contributors to the podcast, our bartenders, who will share with us a recipe, a story, or a bit of history about the food and drink that so often accompany a good conversation. Well, welcome to our cocktail party conversation. Let's all introduce ourselves. I'm Kira Allman, and I'm your host today. And I'm Sally Shuttleworth. I'm Professor of English Literature at the University of Oxford. And I'm Gowan Dawson, and I'm Professor of Victorian Literature and Culture at the University of Leicester. Welcome to you both, and cheers. 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 So what will you be telling us about today? Well, I thought perhaps we could talk about conversazione. Ah, wonderful. That is a great way to start this series, I think. What were conversazione? They happened throughout the 19th century, but particularly from the 1850s. They were gatherings of science and art together. They were wonderful social occasions. They came in all shapes and sizes, from the Grand Royal Society down to little natural history societies. Um, Some were thought to be rather boring. Others were thought to be far too wild and rambunctious. Uh, And they were basically a way of bringing together all sorts of displays, lectures, and allowing the middle classes, largely middle classes, to swan around and enjoy the latest in science and art. They were very much a phenomenon of urban life in the mid-Victorian period, in, in which the bustling cities across, the, the, uh, across Britain um, could show off their civic pride in, in wonderful buildings such as town halls and literary and philosophical institutes. So what kinds of institutes would these be held in? Well, uh, often, if they were for um, maybe for members of the working classes, they'd be in mechanics institutes, which are in, in the 19th century were buildings that, that enormous amounts of money were, were spent on. They were very grand and elaborate buildings with enormous central halls, and it was often in these central halls where lots and lots of people would gather. And so within a conversazione, lots and lots of things would be happening all at the same time. So different parts of the halls would be used for different things. Mm-hmm. It sounds like quite a lot of different sorts of people would attend these events. Who would you expect to find at an event like a conversazione in the 19th century? Well, I, I think kind of predominantly it was a, a middle class thing. I mean, the, the actual name conversazione, of course, is Italian for conversation. It gives it a certain kind of middle class kind of air to it. I'm not sure too many working men would have been that impressed by the idea of a conversazione, whatever that would mean to them. 
mean, one of the interesting things, though, is that there's a very strict rule at most conversaziones where controversial subjects, particularly religion and politics, weren't allowed to be discussed. So this wasn't like a town hall discussion where people would be kind of haranguing each other about their political or, or religious beliefs. And one of the consequences of this was that it meant that women could be involved. Science was a, a form of rational recreation in this period in which um, women often became very much involved. And conversaziones were key ways in which um, women could enter into the, the public realm. And interestingly, the term conversazione is often used interchangeably with soiree, so ah. meaning a sort of evening event. But the Royal Society differed in that it had soirees where uh, the same sorts of things went on, but no women. Uh, and uh -huh. quite a satirical magazine that talks about, well, it seems for the Royal Society, that you take a soiree and add women and it becomes a conversazione. <laughs> I see. Um, and so what was the ambiance of these events like? You know, you've mentioned the mix of men and women, but what, what was the experience itself like? Well, perhaps to take one particular example, the Royal Society Soiree in 1892, where you had the uh, naturalist George Romanes with his rats and his rabbits. I, I think it's amazing <laughs> to think that the Royal Society actually hosted these live animals, snakes in cages. Sounds like fun. But they also had um, a telephone connection with Paris, which in that, was very new, um, and they fixed it up so that they could hear, faintly and very squeakily, they said, but the opera of Salambo going on in Paris. So, very exciting. Plus, they had the physicist um, William Crookes, who'd been involved in the, um, the cross uh, transatlantic cable, firing himself up, passing 140,000 volts through his body, then holding on the other end an enormous tube, so it looked like he was holding a rod of flame. So, a wow. lot of these events had extraordinary um, sort of physical apparatus, and they were very, very interested in electricity. There was also Mr. L. Pike, who had the high-tension electrical apparatus, and the commentators suggest that this would be very good for birthday illuminations. <laughs> Amongst the, the, the new innovations um, displayed at, at um, Conversaciones were, were new visual technologies, so things like microscopes that contributors were invited to look down to see the wonders of, of a drop of water. And then at the other scale, um, magic lanterns which used a quick climb that, that was placed in a naked flame to pro um, project images um, for distances of up to 100 feet. And often um, images of um, astronomy were shown, so um, images of the solar system or, or the universe. So you went really from the microscopic to, to um, the astronomic. A problem with all, the, all of these new technologies, though, is that often they could be rather dangerous. And the magic lantern, by adding quicklime to a naked flame, um, often um, combusted, often they caused fires. And it was actually um, not, a, not a, a thing without danger. That sounds really quite thrilling, but um, not all conversazioni were particularly thrilling, were they? No, well, I've read one wonderful account of the conversazione at the Ladies' Sanitary Association. The correspondent was not thrilled. <laughs> he said, how can it be sanitary to fix you for two hours listening to, uh, to lectures? Uh, he talked about um, the ladies getting, being infected with this detestable passion for making speeches. And apparently after two hours, they were re rewarded with tea and buns. But he says that sort of too late, the whole soul is enwrapped in a profound but painful lethargy. 
so a sense that some conversaciones were to be avoided. But one I, I really like was the another sanitary association, but this was the big congress of um, the Sanitary Institute in Leeds in 1897. Now we need, I think, to get a sense of just how big these things were, because it um, attracted one and a half thousand delegates to the conference. It virtually took over the town. Mm -hmm. They had an exhibition associated with it that went on for, for three weeks. And they had all the local school children performing in physical drills and in cooking competitions. So the Bake Off is not new. Um, and then they, they also um, had expeditions. So things like uh, they went to the Harrogate Baths, the Turkish Baths. But also, uh, being sanitarians, they went to see the Great Destructor, which was a sewerage and uh, refuse uh, processing where they, they burnt the, the refuse, produced the gas, um, and then used the, uh, the cinder for footpaths afterwards. So again, green agenda, we, we can learn something from, from the Victorians. <laughs> and their displays were quite wonderful. So you, you had Cadbury's cocoa next to pure carbolic acid or hot spray disinfector next to the fin de siècle bath, which I do not know what it is, but I'd love to know. That, that also sounds a bit dangerous. You've got the fires on the one hand. And... <laughs> yes, yes. And should you take the uh, carbolic acid instead of the Cadbury's cocoa, you'd be in Oh trouble. my, yes. yes. <laughs> now, as Sally said, many of these conversaciones often actually would be rather boring, perhaps, if it's all about sanitation, or potentially would go over the audience's head. You'd get in a celebrated speaker and actually they'd turn out to be a complete dud. There was one thing, though, that, um, that people could do at these conversaciones because it was one of the few respectable spaces in which men and women could meet together. Um, and actually, there's quite a, a lot of accounts of um, rather flirty conversations taking place, uh, maybe during anatomy lectures or, or things like this, that where the science would have facilitated that. There's a wonderful short story by um, Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, the author of, of Sherlock Holmes. And it's from 1891 called The Voice of Science. And it's set at a conversazione where the young Rose Esdale is pursued by a bounder. He's clearly exploiting the scenario of the conversazione where uh, vulnerable ladies are there. Um, Rose, though, is eventually saved from him during a, a scientific lecture on the perigenesis of the plastidial that nobody can understand. Um, and this enables her to escape from the attentions of this bounder. Um, so actually, kind of boredom and not understanding things um, might have its values. Now, conversazione brought together professionals, experts in the field, as well as amateurs and enthusiasts, and people from the general public. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that mix, the mix of science and arts that would occur at events like this? Yes, well, people often attended in various modes. So they could be the audience, but also they might be displaying their own naturalist collection. Sure. They might then pop up and give a little lecture. Uh, so very interesting mix. And that would just happen organically. People would sort of just stand up and... It would be planned in association with the exhibition. So everybody would take their little prize collection and, and mm -hmm. stand around, a bit like people doing their posters nowadays in scientific conferences, though, I, I think. But you'd also have music, so you'd have local musicians involved. Um, and often some of the conversaciones opened more widely. Sometimes they were just for the little group that was running them. Other times it was a way to show your wares to the populace. And quite often they were the basis for civic competition. So Rotherham being very pleased when they thought they had a better conversazione than Sheffield, for example. <laughs> And, and often it was um, metropolitan men of science, so uh, the great and the good from London, who would go to these provincial cities and, and towns and often um, talk about the 
local museum displays. There, there was a, an enormous amount of civic pride around museum collections. Um, and one of the, the key things here were, were um, fossils and rocks, geological collections. Um, and many of the, the main geologists and, and paleontologists were based in, in London um, and members of the Royal Society, um, but would go to these places and help decipher um, fossils. Fossils, when, when they were just kind of um, small pieces, often didn't make much sense, but you'd bring in your celebrated expert who'd explain to you that it came from a megatherium or, or something along those lines, um, and, and often um, provide magic lantern slides to show you what, what a reconstructed megatherium would have looked like. A bit like an antiques roadshow, I Indeed, suppose. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was just about to ask if uh, you feel that conversazioni are the predecessor to anything that we see today in the scientific or artistic community. Um, you know, did they die out or did they just transition into being something else? Interesting. I think their mm. functions are fulfilled with, by so many forms these days. Uh, lots of the online introductions to collections, and that sort of, but events, all sorts of programmed events now and celebrations, that they owe their basis, I, I think, to Conversazione. And I suppose the really big Conversazione was the Great Exhibition of 1851, Indeed. where you brought the world together and all the things they produced. Mm. Uh, in fact, in um, Charles Dickens' uh, periodical Household Word, there's a, a wonderfully comic um, article about the invasion of the foreigners and how London was up, up in arms about how it would be terrible that governments would fall if the foreigners came in. Um, and then the correspondent strolled around and says, well, actually, it seems like London is very capable of swallowing up all of these uh, people. And in fact, if you look <laughs> around, they're here anyway. And how wonderful. Right. And in fact, in terms of the present day, a, a couple of years ago at the University of Leicester, we recreated a, a conversazione, um, many of us um, dressed in, in, in Victorian garb. And there was a wonderful response and people found it extremely interesting. We had a, a magic lantern display. The, the one complaint that we got was that we uh, didn't provide any alcohol. There was no wine and people <laughs> felt that it would, have been got, it, had, it would have been nicely accompanied by, by a glass of wine. Although actually we were being properly Victorian. One thing to note about the conversazione is often that they had a, a, a temperance rule and so it was generally tea that was served at conversaciones rather than wine or anything stronger. Mm. Well I think it depended on, on the venue didn't it? Indeed, Some yes. were definitely tea and buns and others were, uh, were wine and uh, other beverages. In, indeed I think there's a very famous image of a conversazione by um, the, the Victorian illustrator Richard Doyle called Conversazione Science and Art from 1862 um, and it, it in the description to, to this illustration, it, it said that at the Conversazione, that people talk to one another, exchange ideas, or criticize some new invention, or drink tea. And, and I, mm. I think kind of that sense that, that actually for a lot of Victorians, um, Conversazioni's were, were too serious to have anything other than tea. Yeah, it does sound quite dignified, I have to say. Is there anything else that you, uh, Sally or Gowan, you would like to add about Conversazione that we haven't talked about so far? Yes. Thinking about other equivalents today, of course, there are museum lates, wonderful, successful events that museums open up, often on Friday nights, bring in the young, the enthusiastic. You see science in a completely different way, and it, it's rendered fun and interesting, but it's also a, a huge way of, of socialising. And as uh, people have said to me, yes, it's a, a cheap date as well. Yes. <laughs> and it's interesting that the Natural History Museum in, in London, where there are many museum lates, they're often held in, in a, a space that, that was originally called the Conversazioni Room when it was first built 
in the 1880s, or first opened in the 1880s, it had a specific space for conversaciones, um, and that during the 20th century kind of what was lost entirely. Um, but it's being rediscovered now with these museum lates and happening in the very same space. Why did conversazione st stop happening? Well, I, I think one thing is, is that in the 20th century, there was a, popular science became much more of a kind of passive thing rather than an interactive thing. And one of the aspects um, of a conversazione is that the audience is very much contributing to the event, asking questions, interacting with, with the presenters. Um, and there is a sense that in, in the 20th century, that sense of interaction between professional scientists and, and the public was lost. And so I think conversaciones didn't really fit with the way that science was in the 20th century. Because I think it's also the growth of professional science within the universities, which did contribute to a sense that science was only done within the lab, the man in the white coat, etc., etc. Um, and a separation of what were huge numbers of amateurs who were contributing to science being seen as outside of science. And so, yes, the potential for involving wider numbers of people was lost, I think, because of the model of science itself changed. So, final question then, have we lost something not having conversazione? Is there something we can learn in the contemporary era from this? I think we have lost hugely. And yes, I, I think we need now to learn uh, how, again, we connect science to everyday lives uh, in interesting ways. And, and I wonder if the internet provides possibilities that not necessarily everybody coming together in the same room, but in the same um, kind of online space. So maybe the, the future of conversaciones is, is on the internet. Mm, yeah. You don't get much drink on the internet. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> unfortunately not, yeah. Um, yeah, well, okay. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, it was well, great to you. chat with you. Yeah, lovely. Okay, I think at this point we could all use a top-up, so I'll turn to our gracious bartenders, Corey and Tom, who join us from the Oxford Artisan Distillery. Would you gentlemen kindly introduce yourselves? Hi, this is Corey. I'm from the Toad Distillery, and I'm a distiller. Before that, I was a cocktail bartender in New York and kind of consultant for bars and hotels. Hello, I'm Tom Nicholson. I'm the founder of the Oxford Artisan Distillery, uh, which is Toad. Uh, before that, I was in the music industry. I've uh, been into booze all my life. And now I'm making it. Well, you've both been listening to our conversation today, and we've talked a bit about how central food and drink were to the conversazione experience. And you are both experts in drink. Can I say that? Yeah. Gin was a particularly popular spirit in the 19th century, as it is today, in fact. Um, could you tell us how gin is actually made? Gin, very simply, is the addition of botanicals to a spirit. It's then distilled and cooled down, and then you have a, a flavored alcohol. So you start as neutral grain spirit, which is a pure alcohol. You macerate often your botanicals in that alcohol for a period of time. Then you distill it. It separates the flavors in the botanicals, leaving kind of the bitter ones behind, allowing the more flavorful citrus floral flavors to come over in the spirit, in the, um, in the steam, the distillation. And then you cool that down and it comes out as gin. You then usually water it down to bottle strength, about 40%, and put in a bottle. And for the, uh, for the less literate people in the crowd out there, macerate means to steep. The really basic way, yeah. You soak a bunch of flavorful roots, berries, seeds, juniper mainly, in alcohol. You heat it up, you boil it, and then you cool the steam down. And that's gin in its simplest form. Hmm. Okay. And has much changed about the way alcohol and maybe gin in particular has been produced since the 19th century? Yeah, so the 19th century was a really interesting time for gin uh, in particular, because before that it was, well, I, 
kind of mirrors a lot of industries. It was a cottage industry before this. It was people with their own stills making their own alcohol. Now, one thing you don't hear a lot about when you hear about the gin craze and everyone, you know, London being awash with homemade booze and bathtub gins. Well, they weren't bathtub gins at the time. That was gin. It's everyone yeah. making their own. Um, is that what they weren't using is neutral grain spirit. So at this time, coming out of Holland before this, you know, with the you know, Genevers, you're using a much rougher, richer, darker um, and flavor spirit. It's, it's a rough spirit, which is why you end up putting all this juniper in it, which is why at the time you have Old Tom gins, you know, which came out with have all this sugar. It's to mask this flavor. Now, during the middle, early and middle 1800s, you have the invention of the coffee stills and of the continuous stills, which means you go from a pot still, which is a single process where you put everything in, you get a lower proof spirit out, it's a whiskey still. And you go into what is more more similar to kind of a uh, our vodka stills of today. So massive columns that are able to get a very high proof spirit and then make lots of it. I mean, the original coffee stills were doing 2,000 liters of pure alcohol a day, you know, which at this time was amazing. And what that did is it actually allowed the government to control it because you're focusing, like the Industrial Revolution here, you're focusing cottage industries into factories, right? You're moving people to cities and you're then able to tax and regulate what you're putting out of them. So you put the, there's gin laws that go into place that mean you can't be making it yourself, it's highly taxed. So now you switch from this rough homemade spirit that everyone was drinking cheaply to London dry gins, which are made from neutral. You have to buy your neutral from large factories. You have all the major gin houses, you know, your uh, Bombay's and everything opening at this time using these massive um, gin, uh, neutral That's partly factories. because of that time as well, isn't it? They banned still, so in order for you to have a, a, a booze license, you had to have a still that was over 1800 liters. So, which in point in fact stopped everybody making gin in their bath, you know, stopped the bathtub gin. I mean, the interesting point about those gins back in those days is people were drinking it like beer. So it was it was literally a case of you'd either drink beer or gin, but it would be pints of the stuff, which has led to a lot, yeah. a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, so it was a really, and it really was, what you saw at this time was technological advances that then fueled changes in spirit production, which then fueled changes in people's appreciation of the spirits as well. So with, with most of these things, culture and technology and what people were eating and drinking kind of changed in unison, you know, and they all grew together and re reflected each other. One of the other really interesting things at this time, because it is, it's industrial revolution, you know, you're having these factories. So you have this knock-on effect of these large distilleries that start producing alcohol. That technology then starts being used for other science. You know, now you have the distillation of ammonia, which has a very similar one. Now you're going from a coal industry where you have coal tar and you're using distillations to then make that into more coal gases. You're doing petroleum products. You're doing all of these things which share really similar manufacturing processes to alcohol. And that's all because the technology at the time and the science at the time is starting to evolve. And this all happened during the 1800s, which is yeah, really the one of the most interesting times in booze, technology, cocktails, culture, wow. for all of that. Well, there you have it. We've covered science, conversation, and gin. What more could you possibly ask for in a podcast? Things are really picking up here at this conversazione, so I think we'll leave it there. But thanks for weighing in, Corey and Tom, and hopefully we'll catch you again in a future episode. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Conversationalist is a podcast from the Constructing Scientific Communities Project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It is based at the Universities of Oxford and Leicester in partnership with the Natural History Museum, the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, and the Royal Society. For our most recent podcasts, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud.